A very warm welcome to Tales of a Starry Night, a stories and science podcast on the wonders of the night sky. This is the first episode, so I'll introduce the rationale behind this new offering, but first I would like to dedicate this series to the memory of a very dear friend, Yuli Rallison. Yuli was from Madagascar, and when she visited me and my family in France one summer, she was dazzled by the nighttime lights in Paris. I reluctantly conceded that there could be some beauty in that, but nothing, nothing compared to the awe-inspiring night skies I had experienced in the Malagasy Highlands where we met. There, away from light pollution, I had embraced the full beauty of the night for the first time in my life. This podcast is a way of carrying on the conversation between us, and one of the questions I asked is whether the loss of the night sky is an acceptable price to pay for modernity as we currently see it. For me, it is also a way to try and reclaim what we have lost and what we are robbing our children of as artificial lights dominate the sky. I believe that enjoying the beauty of a starlit sky is our birthright as beings of the earth. Yet we live in an age when private companies threaten to send thousands of satellites into orbit, ruining the view for everyone and interfering with professional astronomical observations. So what I invite you on is a journey of reconnection, a journey punctuated with ancient story, science and observations, for it's all about looking at the night sky. I cannot fully trace back my fascination for the stars. Because in the Parisian suburbs where I grew up, the night sky was somewhat non-existent. Certainly my interest was spurred by an astronomy exhibition at the town hall of my home city. It featured the stunning images of Saturn and Jupiter sent by the Voyager probes. I was completely fascinated and my primary school self received a small telescope one Christmas. Well, I have to confess I didn't go very far with it. The moon, the sun with a filter perhaps. But when I left for Madagascar as a volunteer teacher over a decade later, I brought my little telescope and my ten-year-old self. But the biggest treat in store was the Milky Way. And by this I mean the hazy ribbon of light that stretches across the sky. The term Milky Way also designates our galaxy as a whole. Now let me share with you, with deep gratitude and respect, a first story of the origin of the Milky Way from the Southern Hemisphere, an Aboriginal Australian story. Priye Prigye was a man of exceptional talent. He was an excellent hunter and a skilled dancer and singer who led his people in their nightly dances under the chaos of the night sky. And when I say chaos, I mean it, for in those days, the stars moved about in random movements, a bit like the sparks that dance above a fire. When Priyaprigye sang, the people danced to his rhythms, gliding and jumping in a circle or in a line, their feet lifting the dust, until they fell, exhausted and happy, in the early hours. Priyaprigye, it seemed, was never tired, and one morning, while everyone was still asleep, he left the camp early to go hunting. After a couple of hours of walking, 
he came to a large tree covered in a multitude of flying foxes, bats, that hung from the branches like bunches of berries. He was glad, for their meat is tender and sweet, and he looked to find a large one to feed many people. So he closed in on the tree with footsteps lighter than the spiders, so as not to wake the bats up. And once close enough, he threw his spears at the fastest he could see, and thump! The weapon went right through the animal and pinned it dead to the tree. Awakened by the noise, all the other bats flew in confusion, waiting for their leader. But he didn't come, and finally they saw him with the still quivering spear through his body. Priprigier was sat in the distance, waiting for the bats to leave so he could pick up his quarry. But they didn't leave. They didn't flee as he expected. Instead, they flew towards him, the multitude of them. Some gripped his hair, others his ears, many his limbs down to his fingers and toes, and woof, they lifted him into the air. So numerous were they, he was like cloaked in them. All he could hear as he was carried off, was the beating of their wings and their sharp little cries. And he could see nothing for the multitude of bats flying in front of his eyes. Back at the camp, the people were beginning to worry. It wasn't like Priyaprigier to be gone for so long. So they searched the desert, but to no avail. When night came, they prepared their fires, but there wasn't much food only a few roots that the women had dug that day. But food hadn't been the priority. So they decided to sing and dance and perhaps Priyaprigier would return. But their notes were awkward and their footsteps out of rhythm. They couldn't remember how the dances went and the harder they tried, the worse it seemed to get. Their legs grew as heavy as their hearts were. So they sat down silent by the fire. But then they noticed the noise. It was very faint, but grew louder. It wasn't noise, it was music, a beautiful song. Priyaprigia's song. The voice seemed to be coming from the stars. And the stars, it seemed, were dancing in return. And the people looked at the stars and remembered the rhythms. And so they began to dance. They stepped lightly, gliding and jumping, sometimes in a line, sometimes in a circle, until exhausted and happy they fell on their backs and looked at the sky. The stars now too stood still, no longer glitting here and there, but forming a ribbon of light across the sky. Only Priyaprigie could have led the dance that formed the great river stretching across the sky, and the people remember him, as they danced through the night. The great hero, Priyaprigier, gave order to the stars through the beauty of his song. Now the stars we see at night belong to our galaxy, a system of stars, gas and dust, held together by the force of gravity. Their ordering, their distribution in the night sky, give clues as to the galaxy's shape. It's a disk, a flat spiral in fact, with arms winding away from a bulging center. We're inside the disk, viewing it edge on. 
when looking towards the galactic center, towards the constellation of Sagittarius, we can see many more stars than towards the galactic rim in the direction of Orion. Some of the densest parts of the Milky Way cannot be seen from the Northern Hemisphere. At the latitude where I live, 52 degrees north, Sagittarius is visible in the summer but remains low on the southern horizon. Currently at sunset, the part of the Milky Way stretching from Scorpio to the Charioteer traces an arc from southeast to northwest, only visible from very dark places. Now it wasn't lost to ancient people that how the Milky Way appeared at sunset varied in cycles, cycles that could be related to cyclical rhythms on Earth. And if we stay in Australia, for example, various Aborigines group knew when it was time to collect emu eggs between the hens laying and the chicks hatching by looking at the position of the great, great emu in the sky. Here is a version of how she got there. Once upon a time, there was a terrible storm on Earth. The wind was so strong, it moved the sand in whirlwinds and some of the trees got uprooted. And an emu was hiding behind such a tree, but when the tree was gone, she was blown up into the sky. And she didn't know how to get back down to Earth, so she wandered through space, looking for a place to rest. She first tried to set up camp in the hollow of the crescent moon, and she rested quite comfortably there for a while. But then the moon grew full and pushed her out. So she went to the large camp of the stars that stretches across the sky and she asked whether she could stay with them. The emu was very large, so the stars decided to hold a council. And after much deliberation, they agreed to let the emu stay on the condition that she helped them in their task of holding up the sky. The emu accepted gladly, for she had no means of getting back down to earth. And so the stars moved about a bit, so they left dark places for the emu to camp in. The stars made spaces for the emu to camp in. The emu is not a group of stars, not a constellation as, as we know them, but a collection of dark shapes along the length of the Milky Way. The emu's head is near the Thousand Cross, it is also less poetically known as the cold sack, a dark nebula, a cloud of interstellar dust so thick that it subdues the light of more distant stars behind it. Then her huge body, the body of the emu, stretches through Scorpio and her feet are at the other end of the sky. The emu is, after all, the second largest bird on the planet. So the position of the Milky Way served as a seasonal indicator for ancient people, an observation we could relate to more easily if, like them, we could contemplate it night after night after night. So, I have talked about a river in the sky, about a great encampment of stars, yet people across cultures have seen many other shapes in the hazy ribbon that stretches across the night sky. Ski tracks, a trail of spilled straw, the path of celestial birds, a bride's veil, 
I hope we'll be able to delve into some of those stories at some point. But why do we call it the Milky Way? Well, the origin of the name comes from ancient Greece, where it was called Kuklos Galaxias, the circle of milk, which also gives us the word galaxy. Of course, this name is attached to another story, so let me share with you a version of the myth of the birth of the great hero Heracles. Zeus wanted to father an exceptional son, the like of whom had never been seen on earth. And for this he decided that Alcmen, queen of Tyrinth, wise and beautiful as she was, would be a fine mother. Now the problem was she was faithful. So he came to her one night, using his godly powers to take the appearance of her husband, Amphitryon, and he pretended that he had returned early from the war to surprise her. She was delighted to see him, safe and sound and vigorous, and she didn't really pay attention to the fact that he wasn't tired, hungry and dusty as he normally was when he was coming back from a campaign. And they lay together and they had a great time. But when Alcmene's true husband returned later that night, she knew she'd been tricked. And by whom? But eventually she bore a son. Now it wasn't enough to be Zeus's son to access immortality. The baby had to drink from the breast of Zeus's divine consort, Hera. But Hera, you can imagine, she was exasperated by her husband's many infidelities, and she would most likely refuse to nurse his illegitimate offspring. Zeus wasn't even keen to ask, so instead he asked Hermes, the messenger of the god, to bring the baby to Hera's breast while she was asleep. Hermes did so, but it didn't quite work out as planned, because the baby was really strong and vigorous and sucked really hard, and so Hera awoke in pain, and then she noticed this baby recognized him and snatched him away, letting the milk spread across the sky, thus forming the Milky Way. As you can imagine, the boy, Heracles, was forever hated by Hera, and that's where he gets his name. And that defined his destiny. We'll encounter him again, because a star constellation bears his Latin name, Hercules. The ancient Greeks had also many theories as to what the Milky Way might be, not just a, a mythical story to tell. It could be a vast mass of glowing vapour, the wake of the sun amidst the stars, a badly made seam between two hemispheres of the vault of heaven, an optical illusion, sunlight reflected on that same vault. Some indeed suggested that it was made of the merged lights from myriads of stars. But it was only verified when Galileo pointed his newly invented telescope at the sky and could distinguish what the naked eye confused. In a small booklet entitled Messenger of the Stars, Sidereus Nuncius, published in 1610, he wrote, The galaxy is, in fact, nothing but a congeries of innumerable stars distributed in clusters. To whatever region of it you direct your spyglass, an immense number of stars immediately offer themselves to view, of which many appear rather large and very conspicuous, 
but the multitude of small ones is truly unfathomable. Sometimes I do just that. I lie on my back in a dark corner of the garden and look up through binoculars at the Milky Way. I let the numbers wash over me. A disc, 150,000 light years wide, about 2,000 light years thick, holding over 200 billion stars. These figures vary, they're all estimates, but what they have in common is that they're huge, too much for my brain to comprehend. Yet if I quieten my mind enough, I can just feel a sense of belonging, a sense of being part of the galaxy. And perhaps my friend Yuli is part of it too, in a different way. In Star Lore of All Ages, a book published in 1911 and written by William Tyler Olcott, I read that, according to a French tale, the stars in the Milky Way are lights held by angels and spirits to show mortals the way to heaven. Thank you very much for listening to this first podcast. Please see the links in the notes for images and references. If you liked it, please share it. If you have any comments, please do not hesitate to contact me. And until next time, goodbye.